Well, good morning, everyone. I'm sorry that I'm not able to be with you today. As I indicated in the email that I sent out a couple of days ago, I was exposed to COVID while visiting my family in Ohio and came home to find that my wife and middle son both have COVID, and I am now showing the early signs and symptoms of COVID, so I won't be able to be here, wouldn't be able to be here on Sunday anyway. So I'll record this message for your review on Sunday morning, and I pray and trust that God will bless this to your life. Well, we're going to return to our study in 1 Corinthians. We're looking at servants of Christ, and this is the third message in this series, all of which come from chapter 4. And so Paul is addressing this church in Corinth with the most serious issue of division within the church, and that is the elevated status that was given to some of the spiritual leaders who were amongst them. It was a problem that was so severe that it was literally tearing the church apart, and it's what precipitated Paul's desire and need to address these issues and to try try to set straight what was taking place in the church. So Paul has taken a pretty harsh tone with the church as he has confronted them, and he's beginning the portion of instructing them on how to remedy the problem that they find themselves in. So to this point, as Paul has described the spiritual leader or the servant of Christ, he has used a variety of terms. In chapter 3, verse 5, he used the term of a servant, and 3.6 a farmer, and 3.9 as God's fellow worker, and 3.10 as a builder, and in 4.1 as a galley slave and a steward. So in each of these descriptions, Paul is emphasizing the importance of the attitude of the servant leader and how the church is to appropriately view those that God has sent to them in order to minister on their behalf. Now he comes to the most endearing of all the descriptive terms that we'll find in this chapter, and that is that of a spiritual father. So anytime we use the example of a father, it has the potential to conjure up negative images because not everyone had a role model in their father that they enjoyed or they Uh, admired or looked up to or that they emulated. In fact, a lot of people have a very strained relationship with their father. And so as a result of that, when we have comparisons of something or someone to a father, it can be quite difficult and can also be considered somewhat negative in the lives of those who struggle with having a good father example in their life. In this description, Paul is going to use himself as the model of a spiritual father, just as he has in other portions of this section. Not because he is seeking their approval or their adoration, but because Paul exemplifies what a true servant looks like and what a true servant acts like. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 14 through 21 in our study today. Here's what the Word of God says to us. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved. Beloved children, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, 
but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So as we've examined the servants of Christ thus far, we have identified four of the five traits that we find in this chapter. We find his identity. We find his requirement that he is to be faithful. We find his evaluation, which comes only from God. We find his attitude, and that is one who is the least of the least and who is not worthy to be set on a pedestal above anyone or anything else because he is simply a servant of God. So in our passage today, number five in our outline is his example. Verse 14a, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. So the example that Paul is going to give to us, as I've already mentioned, is the example of a father. He's writing to them as they are his spiritual children. Now, Paul makes very clear that all he has said so far was not intended to bring shame to them, but instead to admonish them. And there are a big difference within those two things. So there's going to be five things that a father does for his children. Letter A is he admonishes. That word admonish means to put to mind. The goal is to bring about a desire to repent. It is to to encourage them to change. It is pleading with them to think and act differently. It is the reproving and correction necessary to be a good father. Now, as a parent, Many times in our lives, especially as our children have gotten older and perhaps in the early stages of adulthood, and we see them going down a path that we know will not be beneficial to them, but instead will be potentially harmful to them, we plead with them, we admonish them to stop and to consider and to listen to what it is that is being said. In a similar way, this is what Paul is doing to the church in Corinth. This admonition that he is giving should cause them to be ashamed of their actions, but bringing shame to them isn't Paul's purpose. Now, when we love our father and we know that we have disappointed him or let him down and we are confronted by that father, our own conscience will generally make us ashamed of our actions. So many times this confrontation and the disappointment that a father feels is enough to create a change of heart and action. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He is admonishing them, not shaming them. But we will find later in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul intentionally designs to bring shame to them because of how sinful their behavior and their actions are. We'll find this in our next study in chapter 5. So in contrast to admonition, to shame someone is to intentionally tear them down or humiliate them or embarrass them with motives that aren't always in their best interest. Now, in the father-child relationship, Paul warns against this kind of parenting. He says in Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what happens to children who are never disciplined? 
What happens to children who are never taught how to live a responsible life? Well, our judicial system is filled with examples of people who were never disciplined or instructed by their parents. If you can, if you ask any child care worker or any teacher about the attitudes and the actions of the children that they teach, they will tell you it is very concerning and it is very obvious to them that there isn't any discipline or training that is taking place in the home. So in the same way, a physical father must admonish his children. Spiritual fathers must do the same for those who are under their spiritual care. As a spiritual father, we must lovingly confront wrong beliefs or wrong behavior with the purpose of bringing correction and change. Paul would say the same thing to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We must be careful that we don't browbeat or humiliate or judge others self-righteously, a loving father should never ever do that. But a loving father will always admonish and reprove and correct and even discipline when necessary. He will do whatever he must that is right and proper for the welfare of his children. So, the first thing that a father does in this example is he admonishes, letter B, he also loves. Now, continuing at verse 14, where Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So, on several occasions so far in this letter, Paul has called the Corinthians his brothers, but now he calls them His children. This is an even more endearing term, and it communicates an even more intimate relationship. Now, as I just told you, I completed the trip to Ohio, and I saw two brothers and one son, and I spent three times as much time with my son as I did with my two brothers. And the reason for that is the relationship between son and father is very different than the relationship between siblings. Now, I love my siblings and I enjoy being with them. But if I have to choose, I'm going to prefer to spend time and invest myself in the life of my children. So as you would expect, Paul uses this word beloved, which is the root word agapao, which is agape love, which of course is the highest form or the highest kind of love. And it is the love that is, is the kind of love that is used to describe God's love for his children. Now, what Paul says, as he is regularly and continuously admonishing this group of people in Corinth, He's telling them that as crazy as you might be and as mixed up as your doctrine and practice might be, I love you with the highest kind of love. One author says this about a loving father. A loving father wants to understand his children as deeply as possible. He wants to know where they hurt so that he can help heal. He wants to know when they are afraid so he can help dispel their fears. He wants to know where they are weak so he can help strengthen them. He wants to know their needs so he can help 
to meet them. That describes, I think, very clearly what a loving father does. And this is the way that Paul is communicating his care for the church of Corinth, just as a loving father. This is how Paul would describe the love that he has for this church in Corinth in his second recorded letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 14 and 15. He says, Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. That's very, very critical to understand. He doesn't seek to gain anything from them. He just seeks them. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now, if we all had earthly fathers who loved like that, how different would our lives be? How different would our world be when we had such a remarkable example of what a loving father is? Now, if you're sitting here today, or if you hear this message, and the thought of your father and the memories of your father bring back to you warm memories and a great desire to be with your father or an intensifying of missing your father, consider yourself to be richly blessed because I can assure you that many do not have that kind of memory or that kind of affection for their father. Paul loved this church in Corinth so much that he was compelled to tell them the truth, to risk their hostile reaction because he was going to lovingly confront them with what they needed to hear. Not what they wanted to hear, but with what they needed to hear, because Paul understood there is too much at stake, there is too much at risk, and he would not be a loving father if he just let them go and do their own thing and just sit idly by and watch their life turn into a train wreck. So Paul admonishes, and he loves them like a father, Third thing that we see here, letter C, is a father reproduces. Verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now the basic idea of this verse is that Paul has the unique role of a spiritual father to the Corinthian church. And in that unique role, he has reproduced children through the preaching of the gospel. He planted the church and he converted many of its members. And so in contrast to the unique role of his influence over them as their father, Paul says you will have countless tutors who will guide and teach and influence you. So what's interesting to understand is that in the Greek, the word countless is the number 10,000, which was the highest number used within the Roman culture. It is meant to be a bit of hyperbole. And Paul is saying that you may have 10,000 tutors 
but you're only going to have one spiritual father. Now, a tutor was a trusted servant within affluent families who were given the responsibility for the well-being of the children, kind of like a nanny would be today. And so in this culture, they would care for, they would teach, they would guide, and they would provide moral training for those under their care. Now, while the Corinthian church will have countless spiritual leaders and influential teachers in their life, Paul is saying you will only have one spiritual father. He became their father through the message of the gospel as they responded to the call of salvation through his ministry and their response and their spiritual birth under his ministry creates this father-child relationship. Now, it's possible to take this analogy too far, so I want to be very careful with how I treat it, and I don't want anyone to take it further than they actually should. So here's the analogy. Physically speaking, a father, by definition, is a man who has children. He is the agent God uses to create life. Some fathers are not fathers biologically, but they have adopted the role of father through marriage or through the legal process of adoption. Some biological fathers are not real fathers at all in the sense is that all they did was to help create life, but they did nothing after that life entered into the world. So I think we can understand what that means. You have somebody who propagates their their uh, offspring, but they're completely out of the picture, and they leave the responsibility of child-rearing to someone else. So a child may grow up without any influence of their biological father. Their mother may remarry. There may be a, a godly man or a, a great example for them, or a couple may adopt children and take on that responsibility of fathering and parenting those children. So spiritually speaking... The person who led you to the Lord may or may not be a spiritual father to you. You were given spiritual life by Christ through their message or through their ministry, but they have had very little input or very little direct involvement in your life. But there is very likely someone in your life in your spiritual journey that is like a spiritual father figure to you and what they did for you and how they helped shape you in your growth for the Lord was incredibly significant. As a result, they hold a special place in your life and their words mean something very special to you. As I think about my own spiritual journey, I think about the people who were influential in my spiritual growth. And I do recognize the individual who is like a father figure to me. And so when he speaks, I listen very intently. When he admonishes, I'm very careful to heed his advice. In the absence of a spiritual father figure we can long for and we can seek to fill that father figure through something or someone who may or may not have our best interest at heart. But what Paul is communicating to the church in Corinth is this. I am your spiritual father. I am speaking to you 
with the highest form of love that I know, and I only want what's best for you, and I am pleading with you to listen to these words that I have to say to you. Paul was both the father and the influencer of the Corinthian church, and he held this unique role of producer and seeing many people come to know the Lord and being a spiritual father to a number of people. And he was an ongoing provider for them spiritually because he discipled them, he trained them, and he helped to shape their lives and their understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Like a father, he was the agent God used to bring them spiritual life. And he is fulfilling his duty to continue the process of nurturing them in the growth spiritually, just like a good earthly father would for their own children. Now, the application to this example and analogy is very simply this. You and I should all strive to be a spiritual father figure to someone whether it be our own children or whether it be someone else, so that God can use us to pass on the best of us into the lives of other people. Now, the fourth thing that we see here in this example of a father is he models. Verse 16, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, every time I read this, I know someone is saying, well, that sounds like a pretty arrogant view of oneself. Is Paul claiming to be perfect? Well, absolutely not. Paul wasn't perfect, and Paul knew that he wasn't perfect. But Paul was certain that he was faithfully leading and teaching the spiritual children that God gave to him to the best of his ability. Now, the word imitator that we see here is the word that we get mimic from. So unlike a father who may say, do as I say and not as I do, Paul was able to say, do as I do because it is consistent with what I say. Have you ever said that to your children? Do as I do and, excuse me, do as I say and not as I do? Have you ever done things that you were embarrassed that your children have seen you do? And have you gone back and apologized for the poor example that that was for them? I hope that is true of us. So this word mimic is what Paul is talking about. And he wants them to mimic the life that he has modeled before them and to imitate the life that they have seen him live. This is so true in Paul's life that he has absolutely no reservation about entrusting the care of the Corinthians to another of his spiritual children, none other than Timothy himself. Verse 17, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now you'll notice that Paul called Timothy his beloved and faithful child. Paul could not address the Corinthian church that way because they were not being faithful. In fact, they were being unfaithful to everything that Paul had taught them and had modeled before them. So Timothy is the imitator that Paul is going to use as a viable reminder and demonstration of the Paul that they knew when he was with them for those 18 months. Paul was diligent to train and teach Timothy, and Timothy 
was a faithful student and follower of Paul because Timothy didn't see anything in Paul's life that would have disqualified him of that unique role of spiritual father. Timothy watched Paul do everything that he taught others to do. So Timothy had no reason to reject the model or to reject the example that Paul had provided for him. As a spiritual father, Paul could entrust, Paul could entrust the example of his life found in Timothy to provide what the Corinthians so desperately needed. Paul says, in a sense, I can't be with you, but I'm going to send to you the next best thing, and that is my beloved, faithful child, Timothy, who will model before you with exactness what you have seen in my life. Now, the last thing that we see in this example of the Father, letter E, it is that the Father disciplines. Now, this runs 18 through 21, and this is really where Paul is pointing all of the conversation this far is that you are either going to listen to the admonition or you are going to be disciplined. Now, so this process begins in verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. That word arrogant or puffed up implies that they believe that they are, by, that they are beyond the corrective hand of Paul. In the physical absence of Paul, and with the apparent lack of consistent example within the church, some people believed they could do whatever they wanted because Paul isn't going to know, and he isn't there, and he isn't going to be able to do anything about it. When I think about that, it brings to my mind that old saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And this is what has happened to the church in Corinth. In the absence of Paul, is they are just running wild, doing whatever they want to do, discarding the teaching, the example of Paul in their life. And so they're either going to listen to the admonition or they're going to be disciplined. They had found liberty and freedom to do what pleased them. And this is a subject that Paul is going to address a little bit later in the book. And they weren't concerned about what Paul might do because after all, Paul isn't even there. But Paul assures them in verse 19, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. So Paul wanted to come and see them. He wanted to help them and set things straight and reestablish truth. But the Lord may choose to prevent that, or the Lord may choose to use a different means of bringing about the correction that was so necessary in the Corinthians church. But Paul's intent and his desire was to come to them and do what a father does. Now, there are times when spiritual fathers, just like natural fathers, must discipline their children. Now, I don't know anybody that likes discipline, I know some that enjoy giving it because they have the wrong motives in mind. But I don't know anybody that enjoys discipline. And so when we begin to talk about discipline, we have this barrier that will go up and say, now wait a minute, I'm a grown man, 
I don't need anybody to tell me what to do, and I don't need tell, anybody to tell me how to believe, and I don't need tell, anybody to tell me where to go. And so we become very resistant and very rebellious by nature to discipline and to the admonition that we are given through the Word of God or through spiritual father figures to us. And so this is something that we need to understand. It's very simply this. When we as Christians slip or drift into wrong doctrine or wrong behavior, we need to be corrected, whether we like it or not. It is necessary because there is too much at stake. Now, this individual who is going to be disciplined needs to be told in love, but with firmness, that your testimony is inconsistent with the Bible principles that you have learned and know, and therefore you need to change. So these confrontations are never easy, but they are often very, very necessary. This confrontation is going to expose, between Paul and the Corinthian church, this confrontation is going to expose the true power behind the words of the arrogant and their defiant actions, and that indicates that what they say and what they believe and what they are espousing as truth, the validity of those words is going to be confirmed or it's going to be condemned by the power that is associated with these words. Paul isn't interested in debating over their words. Paul is interested in the power behind what they say. So in this context, power is a reference to the power of God and to the gospel message. As we've already studied and as Paul has already stated, we see this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and verse 24. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then he would go on to say... And 1 Corinthians 2.4, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So the power of God in their lives will either confirm the truth of what it is they've been arrogantly saying, or it's going to condemn their words as falsehood and their attitudes and actions to go along with it because there is no power to support the things they're saying and the things that they are doing. Verse 20 goes on to explain this. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Now what's very interesting is that Paul uses the phrase, the kingdom of God here, and it's only used in one other instance where it doesn't refer to the consummation of the kingdom At the coming of Christ. So when Paul uses the phrase the kingdom of God, he generally means, he generally uses uses it in an eschatological sense, meaning the future kingdom of God that is going to come. But here, he uses it in the same way that Jesus used the phrase the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the reality is God's kingdom is right now as well as not yet fully realized in the future. 
And so the importance of that is very, very obvious to us. If the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus referenced during his own ministry, and the kingdom's work was demonstrated with power, then the question to the Corinthian church is, where is the power of changed lives? Where is the power that exemplifies the moral teachings and the moral example of Christ and of the spiritual father figure Paul? Where is the power in the lives and the teachings that reflect the reality that the kingdom of God is now, not just in some distant future? In the absence of these proofs, all they have are the words that they've adopted to justify their actions, and it becomes their substitute and their example of truth. The reality of, the, of it is this. There is no power of God in Corinth. The evidence of God's power in our lives and in the life of the people in Corinth is a changed life that God brings. With that changed life, it brings a desire to live holy and righteous lives, and it also brings the ability to live holy and righteous lives through the Spirit who indwells us. This power is what enables us to have victory over the sin that has held us in bondage for all the years of our lives before Christ. Paul would explain this to the Roman church beginning in chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. Paul says, Therefore, do not let, do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law of sin, but under grace. So instead of demonstrating the power of sin, the Corinthians, excuse me, instead of demonstrating the power over sin, the Corinthians have invited sin into their lives, as we'll see in the chapters that follow, and the way this sin has begun to hold them in bondage, is going to cause Paul to unleash some of the most scathing indictment and rebuke that we'll find in all of Scripture. Paul has warned them and he's admonished them, and now it is time for them to decide what they're going to do. And this is what, in effect, he says in verse 21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod... Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. So when Paul arrives, he will either discipline them, figuratively speaking with a rod, or he will come to them like a father who is pleased with the response of his children as they have listened to and understood and embraced the admonition that he has given to them. Now, the question that I have as I have gone through this passage of Scripture and as as it has culminated in this topic of of discipline is very simply this. What does church discipline look like? Well, we find the best example in Matthew chapter 18, 
through the teaching of Christ. And so in this process of spiritual discipline, the first step is private confrontation. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So when a brother or a sister or a spiritual child is in sin, the first step is to go to them in private and confront them with the truth of their sin. You do that scripturally, not I think, not my opinion, not other people are saying. It is scripture that verifies what they're doing as being sinful. So if they don't listen to this private confrontation and continue in this sin, the second step is then a group confrontation. This is what we find in verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So these witnesses that are now part of this group confrontation can say, yes, that is what was said, that was what was done. We can confirm that and we can verify that. And scripturally, this, this needs to be confronted and you need to repent of this. Now, the third step in this confrontation, if the group confrontation doesn't work, is corporate confrontation. Verse 17, so if he refuses to listen to them, to the group, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. Now, what is very interesting to me in this verse is that Jesus uses the term church, not synagogue, and not gathering, and it very clearly is a foreshadowing of the church that would be established in His name that would include all who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, or anyone else. So the third step in this confrontation is to bring the sin to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then you treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that is a very specific Jewish response to the individual who will not repent. If you were to treat a Jew as a Gentile or as a tax collector, you would basically excommunicate him from the community. You would banish him and you would treat him as if he were dead. Now, the purpose in all of this discipline is restoration. It is confronting them privately so the relationship can be restored. If not, it is to bring, bring about a corporate confrontation for restoration. It is to bring about, excuse me, the group confrontation and then the corporate confrontation. So Jesus didn't create this response to sin and to the unrepentant believer. It was a part of Israel's practice from the very beginning. Now, this is somewhat lengthy, but it's important for us to understand this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, when through Moses God was establishing how the people were to live and behave and act and do, here's the teaching that we have, beginning in chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. Now the timeout here is very simply this. Talking about sacrifice. Sacrifice is very, very important. 
because it was a reminder of sin, the constancy of sin, God's provision for dealing with sin. And if you were going to make a sin offering to the Lord, it needed to be through a perfect animal. And if it was not so, it was detestable to the Lord because it is sin. Verse 2, if there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which your Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods, idolatry, and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly the private and the group confrontation. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain... And, and the thing certain that this detestable thing has, has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. So the way Israel was to respond with the unrepentant sinner was to confront them, and if they didn't repent, then it was to excommunicate them and stone them. Now, while this sounds incredibly harsh to us, God is serious about sin, and it has to be dealt with. And this is what Paul is admonishing them to understand, that your sin is a big deal, and if you don't listen to my admonition, then you are going to incur the discipline of the Lord. Now, we'll see this most specifically in chapter 5 as Paul deals with incest within the church. So Paul, the spiritual father of the Corinthian church, is admonishing them for their own good. He loves them like a father loves his children. He has reproduced in them spiritual as spiritual offspring through the gospel of Christ. He has modeled for them a life that is worthy of their imitation. And now he is going to discipline them if they refuse to obey his instructions to them. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for it, for the way it teaches us and confronts us. It convicts us and it warns us. And God, I pray that we would understand that you take sin very, very seriously. I pray that we would listen to the admonition of the Word and not test the hand of the Lord that will discipline us in love for our own good. God, I pray that we would be quick to let down our barriers to hear you speak to the depth of our need, that we would demonstrate our love for you and our commitment to you by honoring you and obeying you in every way that we know how and of repenting of our sin when we are confronted through your word or through a brother or a sister that loves us like a spiritual father. So we give you thanks for your word and pray that you would help us to make application apart from anything that is or isn't said to the work of your spirit that indwells us. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.